Hi, I'm Julia Adolph, and welcome to Loose Leaf Notebook, where we will explore the connection between creativity and mental health, nurturing artistry, emotional intelligence, and self-care. I'm a composer, and I will be sharing my own personal creative process and journey towards mental health, as well as inviting other artists and creative individuals to share their own inspiring stories with you. Today I am joined by composer Dara Taylor. Dara has written extensively for film and television, including the Netflix series Bookmarks and Trial by Media, and she has an upcoming Lionsgate comedy co-composed with Christopher Lennertz, starring Kristen Wiig and Jamie Dornan. Dara is also the composer of the FX series Pride, which is coming up soon. Um, and we went to college together. We talk about how Dara stays focused on her creative work during these tumultuous times, what it's like for her to move through predominantly white male spaces, including her own industry, and also the possibilities of therapy and even stand-up comedy in um, expressing oneself and finding a place for healing. Hey, Dara! Hi, Julia! How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? <laughs> it's so good to see you. I know. I would love to just kind of hear about how you're doing, first of all, and just how your creative practice has shifted. I'm curious, you know, since you're a film composer, presumably you are way more advanced than me and my colleagues at uh, virtual communication and <laughs> using computer software <laughs> and then microphones and all that, which has been like this huge learning curve. So I'm just curious yeah. as a film composer, like, how your work and your industry has been impacted? I mean, um, honestly, for me, again, I spend a lot of time alone in a room. Um, so that part hasn't changed. Yeah. Um, and thankfully, you know, I have a lot of equipment here and, you know, different software systems to send things back and forth, different sites um, that have been useful for, uh, you know, playing things back with directors or listening to mixes um, from engineers and all of that. So, um, uh, you know, it's been a bit of a learning curve for everyone, uh, honestly. Um, there was a moment where everyone was just, just said, okay, hold on a second, what's happening? Um, and that was especially for anything that... Um, you know, had to have a, a dub, you know, where you mix the music dialogue and effects together, um, which usually happens on a dubbing stage in person with engineers in a place where people touch things. Yeah. Um, so there was definitely a, there was definitely like a stop, wait a minute kind of a thing. Um, and, uh, um, and then everything slowly started giving dates again. The other thing, and I'm sure we've all been doing this, it's like, well, all right, how long is this going to last? Is this going to be a three-week thing? Is it going to be a month and a half thing? Let's schedule things for July. It'll be done by July. Oh, wait, no, it's not. So, <laughs> um, yeah, everyone's just kind of betting on the world, and the world isn't really um, paying out. <laughs> yeah. So how has the quarantine affected your writing process? I went through stages of grief, and I think I'm in acceptance 
right now. Um, before it was, you know, you got denial, you're angry at everyone. I'm like, why won't you just wear your mask? Why won't you just do what they say? Look at what you've done. Now it's six months. Um, all of those things. Um, yeah, and it definitely, it at one point just, it just takes a toll on you um, emotionally for a while to see all the things that are happening in the world. I mean, obviously, you know, um, May and June were the worst months because yeah. um, that's when the, the peak of the uh, protests and the rioting and all of that was. Um, and, I mean, not that things should go back to normal, but things have at least... People are trying to find... Um, solutions isn't even the right word. People are trying to find next steps now. Like, okay, this is horrible. It's been horrible for a long time. Welcome. Um, and uh, <laughs> and now it's what do we uh, do about it? And uh, doing something is a lot more um, or a lot less taxing on the psyche than um, sitting and wallowing. When you're saying it's been horrible for a long time, what are you referring mm -hmm. to? Oh, I'm talking about systematic racism and all of that stuff. Okay. Um, I'm just saying everyone's just... like, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that all of this has come to a head because of all of the pent-up anxiety um, and also free time that uh, the pandemic has created. So it's this weird snowballing thing that I think one, you know, one thing can't really happen without another or it'll take another route to get there. Um, yeah. Yeah, because there have been lots and lots of police shootings, um, a lot of, yeah, a yeah. lot of horrible things. And um, this, that one, that one hit because <laughs> everyone was anxious and uh, sad and glued to the news and um, had time to go out and protest and needed a, you know, socially acceptable reason to get out the house and right. all of those things. Like there's lots of... <laughs> Lots of reasons why things unfolded the way they did this time. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, so I'll just say I did not protest because I did not feel um, because of COVID that it was safe to do yeah. so. But I, I didn't either. Yeah. And I felt very, very guilty. Um, did you face any kind of lashback or... I don't know, how, how was it hard to kind of make that decision about whether to show up on the streets or not? Not really. Um, yeah. I think everyone is their own person. And I think what this whole thing is trying to show is that there's not one, um, one right or wrong way to be anyone or any race or um, you can't expect one, um, can't expect everyone of one sect to do exactly the same things. So you're saying that the, that the, um, the experience of current events was sort of more detrimental to your creative process than the actual isolation of the pandemic? Yes. Yeah, I think, yeah, the isolation was, I mean, I'm, until recently, um, and I get like little taste of like people, um, I was like, oh, I forgot how good this was. Yeah. Um, I've kind of been okay with the isolation. I mean, I'm sad that I'm not getting on a plane in a week to go to my little nephew's first birthday party in Ohio. Um, really sad about that. But um, other than that, the isolation has been 
um, all right, especially with my workload. In order for me to be um, productive and creatively productive, um, I can't be bogged down emotionally. Um, it's really hard to get through that. I let myself look at the news until 7 a.m. and then after like five. But there's okay. times where I'm like, don't look at the news. It's yeah. a spiral. You do, you know, just like Facebook or Instagram. Like I also cannot look at the news. I don't, I don't know. I guess at this point I've learned to uh, compartmentalize um, my life from my work. Um, even though, you know, I'm friends with people I work with, like not that kind of like emotional detachment, but just um, unless something in my life is like so pressing or so um, um, close to me, honestly, um, that it's affecting my work. I just can't and won't let yeah. it uh, bother me if I have a deadline. There were, I think, four days in between projects um, that I didn't have anything like currently happening. Like there were things I knew that were coming up or things are like on hold for a little bit. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not going to say like I fell into a pit of depression. I did it. Um, but like if I lost a sense of purpose which is something I should probably figure out in therapy at some point. But, like, as, as soon as I don't have any deadlines, I'm like, well, what do I do with my life? And, like, the first two days are great. And then, like, you get on the third day, and I'm like, well, now, but, you know, I guess all of those things that I push down um, rather than compartmentalize <laughs> start bubbling back up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. I, you know, I like what I do, and I like to have work, and it feels good because, you know, they're lots of people out there that don't have work so I appreciate yeah. the work um but yeah it's just I don't know I'm, I mean but even in college I would take 26 credits a semester That's right so this is not <laughs> new <laughs> yeah so so we were in choir together mm -hmm. at Cornell yeah and um I just love to hear kind of what your experience of Cornell was like as a female composer, um, of which we were the only two, right? Basically? Yes. But there were only, like, five composers. Um, yes. As far as undergrads go. So it felt pretty balanced to me. It, <laughs> Cornell felt more balanced than the real world. <laughs> okay. Well, there was about 15 all-male doctoral students. Well, I don't count them. You don't count um, them, okay? <laughs> no, I'm only I'm only looking at the uh, at the undergrads, <laughs> except for Zach Wadsworth. He was he's wonderful. He was um, amazing, as was um, Eric Nathan. Yeah, I mean there were some great great guys in there, yeah. but there were some very mean. Well, yeah, guys. I mean, yeah, and that part, I guess I don't know. Maybe I blocked this stuff out. Uh, <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, they, they made me feel supremely uncomfortable and um, kind of bad about my um, music or wanting to do it um, and really kind of self-aware of everything. Um, yeah. And I wasn't even really going to study composition until um, Zach showed up. And I'm like, okay, you, you I feel comfortable with. Um, and, yeah, if he didn't show up, I don't know if I would have done it. Can you share what it's like 
as a woman composer, as a woman composer of color? Like, what yeah. challenges are you facing? I mean, I guess when I first came here, and again, a, a lot has changed in, like, the last five years. Yeah. Um, like, a lot. Uh, and, uh, you know, the numbers in the USC Annenberg reports, and they all still say that we're, you know, uh, 2% of the, the highest five or 250 grossing films were scored by women. Um, and then there's like this footnote that said, and then it was like women, um, uh, minority men. And then it was like uh, this footnote that was like, yeah. And um, women of color are um, basically invisible. <laughs> that was what the Use those said. words. I'm like, what? Really? Really? Invisible. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I'll have to find it. I think I posted it somewhere. I'm like, well, I'll just make up for being invisible by being incredibly, incredibly loud. I remember when I first came, especially going to a lot of composer events, um, you know, uh, you know, and I, I would go to some of these events and screenings and stuff with my boyfriend, who is a white man. And uh, we would go and they would talk to him and assume he was a composer. And then they'd ask me where the bathroom was. And that was my experience for a while. <laughs> And at first, I would I would laugh about it, and I'd ask him like, "Why do they keep on asking me where the bathroom was?" And then they say, "It's because they think you work here." And I'm like, "Oh, this wait, Tomash explained that to you?" Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this runs deep. And then like every time, and then I started to pick up on it, like when I'd be in you know Macy's or uh, Trader Joe's. Actually, the funny thing is, it happened once. Um, it happened recently in Target, mm-hmm. um, but it happened after all of the uh, riots, and I could see the women who made the mistake, um, and like the mortification of over what just happened on her face. I'm like, it's okay, because I was like climbing on the scaffolding trying to get something. So like, I get it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like it's okay, but I can see, um, I can see how that. Um, little uh mistake and or microaggression whatever you want to call it um was a different thing um you know six months ago (laughs) to her and now she's like oh crap i'm doing it i'm like yeah you're doing it yeah so there's that there's like the not looking like a composer bit um but i don't know i feel very fortunate to have kind of found my people in a way um, or, you know, find people where that's not a huge um, thing. And, you know, I, obviously I'm often the only woman in the room um, or the only black person in the room or both. Um, and, but that's also a thing that I was, I've been used to my whole life. I think yeah. the biggest thing that I can do right now is just be visible. And um, is just be visible. Is that what you said? Yeah. 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 Instead of invisible USC Annenberg report. Um, yeah, just be visible and hope that helps. So tell me about your work with Chris. I know he's been a really important figure for you. Sweetest man in the world um, and very supportive. I mean, I started interning for him years and years ago. Um, and then I was studio manager for a few months um, while they were in between studio managers. And then I started working for him part-time and then full-time and, and just kind of grown into um, what well, was just score producing and uh, additional music. But we just co-scored a Lionsgate movie together. Um, 
With Kristen um, Wiig, right? With Kristen Wiig, yeah. You know, we kind of s- split the movie. Um, okay. And we all, you know, wrote, uh, use the same theme, thematic material and all of that stuff. You're, you're always in your own head and you know how you think, you know where your voice leadings usually go. And um, it's always just, for me, it's just fun to get, um, like, well, nowadays, getting tracks back over Dropbox. Um, and it's like opening up Christmas presents. It's like, ooh, what do they do? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so for me, it's fun just to kind of um, merge sensibilities. I listened to your, um, your soundtrack for Coleman, which... Oh, uh, Colwell? Colwell, I'm sorry. Yeah. no, no. Um, it was, it was so beautiful. It was just Aww. like so, so lyrical, so touching. How do you get inspired? Are you inspired by the story or the characters? Do you bring your own personal life into it? Yeah. I mean, especially in that one, um, that movie has like a, like a deep history because, uh, it was a movie that I was paired with on the Sundance Composers Lab uh, with that director in that film uh, to just do a, um, a scene as an exercise. And then um, uh, Tom Quinn, the director, um, uh, asked me to do the rest of it after we had finished it. Um, so, and we had, you know, what a lot of people don't have was just like a full week to work on, you know, two scenes and really like... Um, uh, get this uh, the thematic material and also just like the instrumentation and finding out what spoke to both of us and what spoke to uh, the characters and the scene. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, part of it, cause it, it was a, you mentioned um, personal experience. I mean, and often not, I usually, I mean, usually it's, it's a pretty far reaching thing. But in this case, it was about like a woman who lived in a small town and uh, her husband had died. And then she was, you know, they closed the post office, which, which was where she worked. And like, she just felt very alone. Um, and this was like, not even, no, it was like a year and a half after my dad had died. So it felt very, it just made me think of my mommy. I mean, she has like plenty of friends and church friends around but like just the fact that um losing a part of herself and she's afraid of being alone and that really got me you know I still haven't really f- fully processed losing my dad either so I've, again that kind of happened and then I'm like well got deadlines just it in there and <laughs> This is a little more stubborn to, to get in its compartment. But um, but I also talk about it a lot. I think I talk yeah. about the fact that I lost my dad, like, probably probably more often than I think I do. Um, but it helps to, for me, it kind of helps to um, acknowledge it and acknowledge yeah. that it's a part of my life and it's a part of what makes me me now. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I've become... Um, I don't know if calmer is the right word, but um, I see the forest through the trees a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, like between that day, before that day, and on that day, you know something something breaks, um, and you you know you pick up the pieces and see what the new you is. Um, yeah. 
And that is one thing that's changed, you know. Um, you know, I care a lot about my job and I and I work hard and I always want to do good work and work that I feel represents me. And um, But uh, I also know that film music isn't curing anyone's cancer or film music isn't, you know. Um, he, didn't, he didn't have cancer, but I'm just saying, like, it's not, um, <laughs> um, you know, what we do is... is fun and great and helps in the greater sense of um uh you know storytelling and representation through storytelling and all of that stuff so you know i'm not saying it's unimportant but i'm saying that um i've seen people get really worked up over things that don't matter in the grand scheme of the world (laughs) Right, right right um so that um but yeah, I mean, I, I I did some therapy in New York um, um, once with a woman for a little bit. Um, she wasn't too great for me. And then I switched. Um, I realized I had like problems talking and opening up to men, well, straight men. Um, uh, so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to find a straight man therapist. And Really? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did, and it helps, I think. I've just learned to be very open and honest with everyone that I talk to and, and deal with. Um, so if something is, um, bothering me in my life, you know, I, I won't keep that from Chris either. Um, it, I think it's easier to just kind of talk, talk about it, acknowledge it, and then keep going. Because for me, the, the biggest i don't know if it's the biggest but like what bugs me the most or what what drives me the craziest is to um sit and stew on something i was like oh well if i said that maybe to say that or what if that happened or what if that happened and i get so i get more worked up in the what ifs than i do in the um actual act um so yeah. i think acknowledging things um at least helps me release it yeah or whether or not I'm going to pick it up later, I don't know, but it lets me release it for the moment. Um, well, and that's so great that you have uh, like a, a working environment where that is yeah. allowed and appreciated. Yeah. I was doing my homework, you know, before this interview. <laughs> and, you know, just Googling my good friend, Star Taylor, <laughs> uh, to see, you know, if there was anything I'd missed. And um, lo and behold, I found these YouTube videos of you doing stand-up comedy. I'm just curious, you know, how did you get into stand-up? And, <laughs> and um, why did you not tell me about it? <laughs> yeah, those are, those are two separate questions. Uh, how I got into stand-up comedy, meaning um, the four times that I did it, um, all through the same class. Uh, well, back in New York, my boyfriend and I did a few, um, we took a few improv classes just it was a Groupon it was something fun we met some cool people um so we're like let's try that out here and uh we found another Groupon to what we thought was an improv class we got there it was not it was a stand-up comedy class but we stuck with it um and (laughs) and it it also was a lot of fun um yeah it's this uh, place called the Clown House in downtown LA the way that Adam Barnhart teaches it it's really about like finding your point of view as like a human and finding a way to make that funny um or find the ridiculousness within it or the things that you know and find a way to 
I guess, laugh at it and heal through that laughter. Um, in a way, it's just it's cheaper than therapy. Because uh, <laughs> he started every class with what he called clearing. And it was like, you just get up and you talk for two minutes about whatever happened to you that day or that week or um, whatever. It's just a way, and also so it's not like on your mind while you're there to learn and try things out. It's also just like a way to like, all right, let's unload for a second and now let's um, focus on the, the task at hand. Okay, yeah. so you've, you've once said about hypochondria, yes. which I really identified with. Yeah. And um, you had another great set about race as a spectrum. I feel like we... We, those are two things that, like, we haven't really talked about. Like, we don't talk about um, anxiety very much or race, even. Yeah. Um, and, of course, like, we were really close in college, which was mm. already a long time. A while, a while ago. <laughs> How has your evolution, like, as you've gotten older, um, how have you sort of felt more comfortable talking about you know, race or, I mean, I also, yeah, there... I mean, for years I felt supremely uncomfortable talking about race, like probably until I was like 25, um, which is why I've never really talked about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, therapy helped. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, falling in love and being in a committed relationship and not, you know, worrying about your worthiness so much helped. Um, uh, and honestly, I mean, even then I still didn't talk about it a whole lot. I mo I joke, I talk about it now. I joked about it then and joking about it was the first step. At first I always like shied away from like making my sets about that, about that. Cause I'm like, but I don't really talk about it that much in real life. And then I realized, oh, that's the point. <laughs> right. Let's find the stuff that you feel uncomfortable talking about and, um, you know, Crack it open. Get in there. Find out. Um, find out. Find the joy. Right. Because in, in some ways, like with music, you don't have to do that. Like yeah. you can do it. You can know that that's what it's about for you, but you don't have to expose yourself in the same way that, oh, my God, stand up is like one of the most vulnerable art forms, I think. <laughs> in existence i mean maybe i feel much more vulnerable about music but sure. that's because i'm like i try you know one is my life and the other is my hobby so if listeners want to find you follow you hear your music where should they go um let's see they can go to my website jarataylor.com um I have a couple of things on Spotify, working on getting more stuff on Spotify. Same, same name. Um, and they get all oh, the cats back. Um, they can uh, follow me on Instagram, Dara Taylor Music. Um, I don't really post uh, too much to many other things um, that are followable. Uh, my, my Twitter is a joke. So don't don't go there. I mean, you're not gonna find a whole lot. Uh, same check with my out Facebook her stand page. Up. So check out my Instagram. <laughs> Dara reminds us that no matter what obstacles you may face in your pursuit of your career or following your dreams, it is so important to have a community around you of people who support you and believe in you for who you are. 
Um, and it takes work to find the right therapist or to find a composition teacher who is going to encourage you for your voice. Um, and then, of course, to have a community of, of friends and family and loved ones who will support you along the way. Um, these are the things we all need, um, regardless of whatever career path we choose to follow. So thanks, Dara, for joining me today. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again. <laughs>